Okay. So on Friday, we were talking about B-cells and B-cell activation and B-cell receptors and the way in which B-cells were going to participate in the humoral immune response. And I said today we would start talking yeah, about lymphocyte activation, lymphocytes themselves, in terms of the signals that are going to lead towards lymphocytes turning on and entering cell cycles and, and being able to participate in the immune response. If we talk about lymphocyte activation, we can basically cross out the word lymphocyte from the first couple of slides of this lecture and just put down cellular activation. Right? Because there's a lot of shared components, right? Those, those signal transduction mechanisms are shared by most every cell that we know about. If we know anything about the signals that are taking place in the interior of the cell, we've come to learn that this is shared by most every cell in the body. So we could sort of cross off lymphocyte, and we could put down fibroblast activation, we could cross it off and put down heart cell activation, right? Kidney, active, kidney cell activation, most any other cell in the body is going to have similar sort of secondary messengers and some of the pathways that we're going to talk about today. It was by studying cells of the immune system that a lot of this information was learned. It was by looking at lymphocytes and it was looking at particularly B cells and looking at how immunoglobulin molecules were regulated and how immunoglobulin protein synthesis was turned on in terms of activating the genes that we learned most everything about the early stages, and by early stages I mean early investigations that were taking place in the 70s and the 80s, by looking at the activation of lymphocytes. Because if you remember, we have a pretty good system for turning on B cells. We could take those B cells, and if we have that homo, uh, homogeneous population of B cells. We have our dish with 100% B cells in it. And if we add an antigen, we know that that B cell is going to recognize that antigen. We can see the changes that are taking place. We've talked a little bit about changes that take place. We talked about the B cells getting bigger and the B cells entering into the cell cycle. And we talked about during phagocytosis as the macrophages get a little bit bigger. So we have this very nice reference system that we can start to deal with. With T cells, same thing can take place. If we take those T cells, if we take a cell and add some sort of, of stimulant, and it's going to stimulate those T cells, then we can do that experiment that we've been doing quite a while, right? We're going to take our stopwatch, we're going to start our stopwatch, and we're going to see what's happening to those cells. And in here, we're going to do it with, with lymphocytes. We're going to do it specifically with T cells. Right? We're going to add our, our, our ingredients, we're going to start our stopwatch, and we're going to see what's going to be able to take place. If we're talking about T cells, we'll talk about T helper cells. Right? T helper cells plus antigen is going to be able to stimulate the T cell to enter the cell cycle, which is eventually going to lead to the expression of the interleukin-2 receptor and secretion of interleukin-2. So we basically have this, this black box that we want to be able to deal with. So we have these T cells, right? we have something that's going to take place as this recognition takes place up here with the T cell receptor, and a certain amount of time later, we're going to get interleukin-2 being released, and we're going to have interleukin-2 receptors on the cell surface. So something's going to happen up here, right? a certain amount of time, right? there's our black box, certain amount of time is going to take place, and then that T cell is going to start secreting interleukin-2. This could be any sort of cell, right? This could be some sort of chemical or electrical stimulus, and those heart cells are beating in rhythm. It could be kidney cells that are doing whatever kidney cells do, fibroblasts that are going to start secreting collagen. Right? We could look at any one of these things in this black box. We're going to do something to the cell, something's going to happen inside, and then there's going to be a sort of reaction on the other side. For the T cells, we can look at secretion of interleukin-2. Right? We know that we'll be able to do this. The trouble with doing this experiment right here, right, to be able to stimulate the T cell by giving it antigen, 
it means we have to have an MHC class 2 molecule present. And if we have to have an MHC class 2 molecule present, it, need, it means that we need some sort of antigen presenting cell to be present. And once that takes place, right, once we have contaminated our dish now, right, because our tissue culture dish has to have T cells in it, and now our tissue culture just has to have antigen presenting cells in it. Right? Now, we don't know what we're looking at when we do this. Right? Once we add our antigen presenting cell or we add our T cell, right, as this interaction starts to take place, there's going to be signal to the interior of the antigen presenting cell. There's going to be uh, signals transmitted to the interior of the T cell. Right, it's going to get all sloppy. We're not going to be able to know exactly what's going on in there. So we need a system where we can just stimulate our T cells directly. And we can do that. Okay. We talked a little bit about cross-linking the other day. We talked about cellular activation by cross-linking, and that's exactly what we're going to be able to do here. Right? We're going to use an antibody to look at the mechanism here. So we're going to add an antibody to the T cell receptor itself. So we're going to add that antibody to our dish of T cells, and those antibodies are going to bind to T cell receptors on the surface, and they're going to start to cross-link those T cell receptors. And by cross-linking those T cell receptors, we're going to be able to get activation. So we don't need any other cells here. Once we add that antibody, once that antibody is in the system, it's going to bind to those T cells. We can start our stopwatch and we can see what changes are happening to that T cell based on this receptor clustering and the signals that are going to make their way through the T cell receptor towards the rest of the cellular interior for doing this right here. So, we could do that again. We're going to cross off, right, look at antibody, activation of T cells, add an antibody to the T cell receptor. If we had an antibody, these were kidney cells, right, then there had to be some sort of surface molecule on kidney cells, on heart cells, on lung cells, on whatever kind of cell you want to have, right? If we cross-link those receptors and we drive the signals through without having any other exogenous uh, substances or any other cells contaminating our culture system, we're going to be able to see what's going to happen to those T cells. Right? And that's exactly what people did. And this sort of information that came from here, right, came and then as other people did, T cells and B cells and macrophages, and then we left the immune response and we were looking at neurons and, and stomach cells and kidney cells. Right, these common sort of intracellular messaging pathways were discovered. Right. So we all know, right, to, to take the T cell, we need antigen. It's got to be processed. It's got to be sitting in the MHC. It's got to be coming into contact with the T cell receptor. We can use antibodies, right, to directly activate the T cell by cross-linking the T cell receptor itself. So we're going to do that experiment. We're going to take our dish of T cells, we're going to add our antibody molecules, and then we're going to start our stopwatch. And we're going to see what happens in seconds. We're going to see what happens after a couple of minutes, after a couple of hours, after a couple of days, right? The changes that are taking place in these T cells. And we can start to see, right, genes being activated. And we can group those genes into three sort of different sort of time frames. We get uh, immediate genes. They're going to be expressed within 30 minutes of antigen recognition. There's going to be mostly transcription factors that are going to be activated. When we talked about NF-kappa B, we said that NF-kappa B was bound to I-kappa B inside the cytoplasm. And once I-kappa B was removed from NF-kappa B, NF-kappa B was going to translate into the nucleus as a transcription factor. So that's what we're talking about, right? Within 30 minutes, NF-kappa B is uncoupled from I-kappa B. NF-kappa B makes its way into the nucleus, and it's going to start with gene expression. Within an hour or two, right, the same activities can take place. Within an hour or two, expression of, within an hour or two of antigen recognition, Right? Genes like interleukin-2, the interleukin-2 receptor, interleukin-6, interferon gamma are going to be 
turned on, and those genes are now going to be transcribed, and we're going to result in protein synthesis. And the late genes that are going to be activated are going to be expressed maybe 24 to 48 hours later, and these are basically going to be various adhesion molecules, right? When we talked about those T cell, B cell conjugates, when we talked about those, M, those uh, T cell target cell conjugates, that's what we're talking about. Right? We need more of that Velcro, we need more of those adhesion molecules that are going to be on the cell surface. When you look at sort of gene expression, this is typical of what's going on inside other cells as well. We can get, right, the immediate genes are going to be ones where transcription factors are going to be brought into the nucleus. Early genes, they don't necessarily have to be all of these, because we're talking about T cells specifically. And within 24 to 48 hours, other genes and other cells, if we're going to use similar systems and we're going to look at similarities between cell signaling sort of mechanisms, right, this is what's going to be able to take place. This is what we're going to be able to see, right? Some immediate genes, early genes, and late genes. So these intermediate and early genes, right, within one to two hours or so, you can start to see this activity inside the nucleus. You can start to see messenger RNA starting to be manufactured, right? So that's usually going to take place within the first six hours or so. And then you're really not going to see any sort of proteins secreted from the cell for about 18 to 24 hours. So getting those genes, getting those messenger molecules manufactured, having those messengers make their way to the ribosomes, have those ribosomes turn out protein, it's going to take about 18 hours or so for the proteins to be starting to be secreted. So things like interleukin-2 won't be secreted out into the, into the tissue culture media where you'll be able to detect it for about 18 to 24 hours. You're going to start to see, right, the interleukin-2 receptor on the cell surface after about 18 hours itself, right? These are the genes themselves. The proteins aren't going to be there for several more hours, okay? So when we look at all of this, right, that precise mechanism that links antigen recognition by the T cell receptor to gene activation, really, you know, we got, a, we got a pretty good idea, but we don't really know jack about what's going to take in place, right? But there are a number of signaling, right, sort of events that are common to many other cell types. We've talked about this before. What is it about, right, cross-linking and clustering those, those proteins on the surface of that T cell that's going to make those T cells signal that are going to, uh, that are going to be able to activate those secondary messengers inside the cell? We really don't know. Right? We know a whole lot, right? but it's sort of like an iceberg. We know about this much, there's about this much below the surface we have no idea about. So, what can we know? What are, what's, what's some of the general sort of things that are taking place? Clearly my PowerPoint expertise is, uh, is showing here again, right? So, I'm basically just going to Go the whole board here, and we'll step through each individual place here. So, what do we do now? And again, this, again, this just says cascade of bio, biochemical events, absolutely for T cells, absolutely for heart cells. Every single protein, every sort of mechanism we're talking about here has been seen in numerous other cells. Okay? It's just that we're going to talk specifically about what's going on in the T cell. So the first thing that's going to be able to take place, right, are the tyrosine kinases, right? Those protein tyrosine kinases have become activated. They're going to become activated. They're going to phosphorylate phospholipase C. Phospholipase C, or PLC gamma-1, is a fatty acid that sits on the inner leaf of the lipid bilayer, right? It's a signaling lipid. It's going to be cleaved, right, by phospholipase C going to cleave some, and we're going to result in the formation of, right, an intermediate here, PIP2, phosphatidylinositol-4,5-bisphosphate. Right. Picture is worth a thousand words here. So, right. here's PIP2, phospholipase has become activated, it's going to act on P2, 
PIP2, and again, PIP2 hangs on the inner surface of the lipid bilayer. This is the outside, this is the bilayer. This is on the interior of the cell. Phospholipase C is going to be able to break down PIP2 into two major signaling molecules, two other lipid signaling molecules. Right, we're going to form diacylglycerol, and we're going to form inositol 1,4,5-trisphosphate, or IP3. These are very common signaling pathways. It's very common sort of signaling activities that are going to be able to take place. So, here's the IP3, right, that are coming from cleavage of those, of those lipids and diacylglycerol. IP3 is going to be important for the mediation of the release of intracellular calcium. Calcium is the major signaling molecule in the interior of the cell. We're going to release intracellular calcium to be able to have extra calcium inside the cell, and that's going to result in the initiation of these signaling cascades. And intracellular kinase is going to add additional phosphate to IP3, turn it to IP4, and IP4 is going to be involved with opening calcium channels on the membrane Right, to get even more calcium to the interior of the cell. We've got to get those calcium molecules in there so calcium can now stimulate other activities of these signaling cascades. On the other half, right, between IP3, after we break apart PIP2, diacylglycerol. Diacylglycerol activates a protein kinase. It's protein kinase C. Right? It's going to increase the affinity of protein kinase C for calcium. So as this calcium comes flooding in, it's going to become part of activation of PKC by diacylglycerol. It's going to change or help change the intracellular right, hydrogen ion concentration inside the cell, and that's going to increase the pH of the cell, which is going to be important for signaling. Protein kinase C is also going to catalyze phosphorylation of many other signaling proteins, like CD4, the interleukin-2 receptor. It's going to be involved with activation of NF-kappa-B. So before, when we said we had these co-signaling co-receptors, right, like signals being transmitted by CD4 into the interior of the T cell, so as that... I'm going to make this... T cell really small here, right? So as we have the T cell receptor here interacting with the MHC class 2 over here, and we also had CD4 interacting with the alpha 3 domain, so we can get signals being transmitted through the T cell receptor, but we all know when I say T cell receptor, I mean CD3, right? Let's not forget that. And, right? we can also have signals transmitted by CD4. On the other side, right, on our, on our phagocytic cell over here, right, signals via the MHC, through B7, CD28, right, CD28 is a co-signaling molecule, B7 is a co-stimulating molecule, so we have all these interactions taking place, we have all this information being driven into the interior of the cells, and a lot of this is going to be potentiated by protein kinase C. So hopefully, right, you've all seen this in cell bio, right, you've probably spent weeks and weeks talking about this in cell bio and other places. I would hope. If not, right, this is sort of super, super common stuff in terms of signaling to in other cells. So, what do we know about the role of calcium or how do we know about the role of calcium and protein kinase C in T-cell sort of signaling? Well, we know that because we can also activate cells without signals coming through the T-cell receptor. There are certain sort of pharmacological agents that we can use right, to sort of cut out some of these signals that are taking place over here. And if we have, right, individual proteins in a pathway, right, let's say this is something happens on the membrane, and this is going to lead to, right, the secretion of interleukin-2, we know that we have these very sort of 
well-known steps that need to be able to take place, but there are also other ways that we can sort of activate right, proteins that are along that pathway. And we can circumvent, we can bypass some of those earlier things, and so these earlier things here would be signaling through the T-cell receptor, right? We can bypass those and we can activate proteins that are further down the pathway. And that has led to, right, the elucidation of these steps along the pathway leading, right, through these intracellular signals, through these secondary sort of signaling molecules, it's a way to break down the pathways and know how these pathways are connected. And that's exactly what we can do when we're looking at calcium, right? Because we can look at a bunch of calcium agonists and a bunch of calcium antagonists. Right? So an antagonist is something that's going to be able to get in the way of those calcium signals, and agonists are things that are going to be able to stimulate what's going through with those calcium signals. And we can use what are called calcium ionophores. And calcium ionophores are a bunch of chemicals that have been isolated that are going to be able to open calcium channels and to induce the influx of calcium all by themselves. So what it means is, if we keep going back to the, to the, big, to the big picture here, we don't have to activate the T cell receptor, activate protein synase C, start breaking up and making PIP2, making IP3. We can go here and we can start signaling right in the sort of the cascade further down right here. We can get rid of all of this and we can stimulate cells directly by inducing calcium. So that's how we know about these certain steps. That's how we know about how one thing leads to another, because we can bypass a bunch of these steps. We're going to use calcium ionophores. Right? So the major calcium ionophores are A23187 and ionomycin. So A23187, it's not a very sexy name, but it's one of the better calcium agonists that are out there. Right? When we talked about the way in which pharmaceutical companies used to work, right, back in the old days, in the 1960s and the 1950s, before we had biotechnology and before we knew how to clone genes and before we knew about sort of these natural products, right, before we knew how to make monoclonal antibodies, before we knew how to do all these different things, if we worked in one of these pharmacological research areas, right, the organic chemists were the number one people in the old pharma, because they were the ones who knew how to sort of, you know, mess around with structures and start changing all sorts of things on the molecule itself. So they would come up with these compounds and then they'd yell down to the basement where the biologists used to be and they'd say, hey biologists, you know, here come some things, tell us what they do. So the biologists in the basement would have dishes of T cells, d dishes of B cells, heart cells, kidney cells, toe cells, heart cells, hair cells, any sort of cells you can think about. And they would add all of these different chemicals, right, that these organic chemists were sort of sending down. So probably at one point in time, A23187 was just the nomenclature for one of these chemicals. So we would take our A23187, we would edit the T cells, and we would yell back up to the chemists, hey, chemists, A23187 seems to do something with calcium signals. Right? T cells are being affected, heart cells, kidney cells, all sorts of different cells are being affected by A23187. So news would get back to the organic chemists, and they would you know, start changing some things. They'd move some carbon atoms, a couple of angstroms out. You know, you took organic chemistry more recently than I did, so you would know all the different reactions to move carbon atoms around. And then they would send it back, and they would say, all right, now what's it doing? And you'd say, oh, it gets even better, because we can use even less. Right, so we'll call this, right, maybe instead of calling A23187A or A23187C, right, maybe we'll call it ionomycin now, right? It's ion. It has something to do with the ions that are taking place in there, right? So that's how a lot of these chemicals came to be. Anyway, here's calcium ionophores, right? So these calcium ionophores are going to be able to stimulate calcium sort of activation, right? So, we're using our stopwatch here. We're looking at calcium concentration increasing with time. And 
Right, so we get this much calcium. Here's we're adding our anti-T-cell receptor antibody, right? We're sort of back to doing this activity right here. We're starting our stopwatch, and what do we see? We see influx of calcium into the interior of the cell. Now, that's either coming from intracellular pools that are now being opened or coming through the, the cell membrane. We're really not sure, but if this is five minutes, right, this is two and a half minutes, this is a minute and a quarter, and that's coming from the zero over here, so that's like a minute in. So this is happening within seconds. So something is taking place on the cell surface that is translating to intercellular, intercellular calcium levels skyrocketing, right? That's going up 10 times within, I don't know, even if we say within one minute, right? Lot, something is taking place inside there, again, Right, our biophysical friends would tell us we've got a long way to go to know what's being able to take place here, right? We've got a long way to go to sort of figure out how this clustering of these receptors on the cell surface is turning into increased calcium inside the cell within, and I'm, you know, I'm going to call that one minute. Right? So, we don't need that. All this has, all this has taken place in a minute. We're adding our antibodies, we're seeing these changes, right? These tyrosine kinases are becoming activated, phospholipase, phospholipase C is acting on, right, these lipid molecules, we're making these lipid intermediates, we're having increases of calcium inside the cell in less than a minute. So, we're using these calcium ionophore molecules to sort of, to sort of sidetrack that to sort of get to, all right, let's forget about what's taking place down here. Where does calcium fit in this pathway and what is it doing? Right. We're going to add A23187 to these cells and we're going to be able to stimulate interleukin-2 secretion directly. So that means we know that A23187 now has something to do downstream in the interleukin-2 pathway. And we can start to break this down, and that's what, that's, what, right? that's what investigators have done over the years to look at cell signaling. Right? If we wanted to have a course here, we could have a course in cell signaling, and we would have enough material to talk about for probably two semesters worth of cell signaling. Okay? So this is just one of those experiments looking at how calcium is active along the pathway leading from right, engagement of the T-cell receptor to stimulation of the release of interleukin-2, right? Protein kinase C. We can use protein kinase C activators because we have a whole bunch of protein kinase C activators. Right? We're just taking all sorts of chemicals and we're throwing them in. We're seeing what be able to take place. PMA is the, one of the major protein kinase C activators, right? Fulbomyricetate acetate. It can directly activate protein kinase C and initiate the events that would normally be mediated by, again, kinases, phospholipase C, cleaving PIP2 to diacylglycerol, right, and having that activate protein kinase C. Right? Again, we're cutting out, right, all of this sort of activation from the T-cell receptor over here, right, so this is adding the ionophores, we could add protein kinase C, and now we're going to see where the, oh, well, not protein kinase, sorry, PMA, and we're going to see where, what sort of intermediates PMA is going to be able to stimulate and what those results are going to be, right, along over here because we've gotten rid of all of this and now we're further down in the pathway. We're further down in the pathway and what are we seeing PMA doing? We're seeing PMA is stimulating into leukin 2 receptor expression. So, that means that, right, we've engaged the T-cell receptor. There's a certain amount of steps that are taking place in here. There's some sort of turnoff point into leukin-2 receptor, and right, PMA is sort of in here someplace. 
leading towards right, interleukin-2 receptor on the cell surface. We're going to do this over and over and over. We're going to do it with all sorts of different compounds that we can make, that we can find, that we know has have activity. We're going to take PMA, we're going to add it to, again, we're going to add it to kidney cells and B cells and macrophages and heart cells and toe cells. We're going to add these ionophores and we're going to see right, how all these pathways are intermingled, intermixed, and being activated in numerous cell types, in almost every single cell type. So now we're basically talking about changes that led to a revolution in cell biology. Again, we're going to forget about this part for a while. We're not even going to worry what's taking place up there because that we don't have any idea, so we don't care about that, right? We're going to be able to see what sort of signals are taking place inside the cell. We're just going to assume Right, that eventually we're going to figure out how changes on the surface are going to lead to these secondary messengers. But the more information we can get, the more we can see how these pathways are being regulated. And that's what's going on, right? Those are the, I would say that in cell biology and sort of T-cell signaling, those are the major sort of activities that are being looked at these days, are how these secondary messengers are being activated and these individual steps along the pathway leading towards, right, really as immunologists, yeah, the only part we care about are this part and whatever happens out here, right? As a cell biologist, sure, we're interested as in, in these signals that are taking place, but as an immunologist, right, we want to see, right, these immunoproteins being released or being stimulated by these cells and how they fit into the immune response, right? Because that's the part that we care the most about. So, if we look at all this taking place, right, we're going to be interested in knowing about calcium and how calcium fits into this signaling pathway, right? Where does the calcium come from? If we add EGTA, and EGTA is a specific calcium chelator. It is sort of the cousin of EDTA. This is a, a whole sort of different chemicals in the same family that are involved with uh, inhibiting ions. Right? EDTA is the one you might be familiar with. EDTA is a, is a chelator of metals itself, so it's going to be able to interact with and take calcium out of the picture, take magnesium out of the picture, all sorts of these other sort of metal chelators. Here we're going to use EGTA and only take calcium out specifically. Right, so we're going to add EGTA to the external space. EGTA isn't able to cross the cell membrane. So EGTA, right, if we have our dish out here, and if we have EGTA, and EGTA is tying up all the calcium ions out here, Right? Because we know that these external calcium molecules are important. Right? Now we're going to add the antibody to the T cell receptor and we're going to stimulate the T cell. Right? T cell becomes stimulated because of this cross-linking that's going to be able to take place. So what's going to happen to signaling now? Right? We've gotten rid of all the calcium in the outside part of the, of the cell. Right? The calcium, right? is coming from the intracellular pools. Because when we do this experiment, and we're going to be able to compare, right, same exact T cell, same exact concentration of antibody molecules, right? we have the same amount of calcium in our media out here, only we don't have EGTA, we don't see any difference. This tells us that there are pools of calcium inside the cell. Right, we now know that there are places where calcium is stored, like the sarcoplasmic reticula, right? other places where calcium is stored. So that's where this initial pulse of calcium is coming from, from these intracellular pools. If we keep our stopwatch going, and we're going to compare how the T cells are responding you know, minutes to hours later, that's when we're going to start to see differences taking place now. Because now these cells are going to start to not signal as efficiently as these cells are signaling. So what that tells us is, or that's the way we knew about, right? we're going to go back and we're going to add 
right, more information to this chart. That's how we knew about release of intracellular calcium pools, and that's how we knew about, right, changes of IP3 to IP4 leading towards channels on the membrane opening to allow additional calcium to come inside. Right? We did, there have been, right, thousands of experiments that have been done that have contributed to these individual pathways. Right, so those that have to do with calcium and the role of calcium. We look at protein tyrosine kinases. We've talked a little bit about those ITAM sequences on the interior of the cell, on the CD3 molecules, on the CD4 molecules, right? Protein tyrosine kinase are going to interact with those ITAM sequences on things like CD3 and CD4, and that's how signaling is going to be able to take place. We have very specific protein tyrosine kinases like LCK inside a T cell that are associated with the cytoplasmic tail of CD4 and CD8. So LCK is going to be involved. We have other ones like FIN and ZAP kinase, and they're associated with the cytoplasmic tail of the CD3, right? That zeta protein. So it appears that this is how we're getting those individual pathways driven towards right? Individual genes that need to be activated in lymphocytes because we have these very specific protein tyrosine kinases that are only found in T cells. Other protein tyrosine kinases that are only found in heart cells, that are only found in B cells, okay? Tyrosine kinases, when the, when the tyrosine kinase literature first started, right, there are only one, two, maybe three tyrosine kinases. Now, you go to recent articles, there are hundreds and hundreds of protein tyrosine kinases. Right? So that appears to be where the specificity is coming from. So right, we looked before, here's LCK as a protein tyrosine kinase. It's going to be able to interact with those ITAM motifs right, on the CD3 molecule, and that's going to allow other molecules to now become part of the signaling cascade. Right? Here's, our here's our phospholipase C. They're going to be able to interact with other molecules on the interior of the cell to change those molecules so that they can also be involved in the pathway right, of right, molecules signaling other molecules in that pathway that's eventually going to lead to those transcription factors getting out from the cytoplasmic spaces and back into the nucleus. Okay. So, the thing that's going to be able to take place here is a way to sort of break down how these T cells are going to become activated. Right? This is when we're coming back towards the immunology that we're important for. Right? So we got to figure out right, how is this naive T cell, this T cell here that's sort of minding its own business, how is that T cell going to be activated so it can be part of the immune response? Right? Something's going to take place. Right? All the T cells inside your body right now, well, unless you have some sort of cold, unless you don't feel so good, right? but all the T cells inside your body, in general, are at some sort of resting phase right now. Right? They're naive. They haven't been activated. They're waiting to be activated. They know they can be part of the immune response if the conditions are right, but nothing's happening. The conditions aren't right now. How are we going to take that resting T cell and drive it into the immune response? So we need to see how that priming is going to result in activation, and we can see that it requires a couple of different signals to be able to take place called the co-stimulatory signal hypothesis. So in addition to signals that are mediated through those T-cell receptor and accessory molecules, okay, activation of those T-helper cells require a co-stimulatory signal provided by the antigen-presenting cell. Remember last time when we said, what does it take to be an antigen-presenting cell? You got to be able to process and put uh, peptides on the MHC class 2 molecule on the surface, and you also have to have the B7 molecule on the cell surface. Right? B7 is also 
CD80, there's uh, several different B7 molecules. Uh, a series of B7 molecules have been found, B71 and B72, are CD80 and CD86. Okay. So these B7 molecules have to be present to be able to drive this naive cell. So what's that what that is telling us is right, that the first step here is our antigen presenting cell has to have the right peptide on the surface, right, because that's going to come through the T cell receptor signaling. And then this B7 molecule has to be on the surface, so it's going to be able to interact with CD28 on the surface of the T cell. So that's the co-stimulatory signal. Signal 1 comes through the, the T-cell receptor. Signal 2 comes through the B7 molecule, or other molecules that are going to be similar to the B7 molecule. Okay? So the stimulus needed for full T-cell activation, T-helper cell activation, and again, if we're talking about T helper cells, we're talking about cytotoxic T cells, we'll talk about those in a second, but sort of put those cytotoxic T cells side by side with these T helper cells. Right? So interaction between the T cell receptor and the MHC molecule and those B7 molecules interacting with cells on the surface of the T cell. So signal one is the activation signal. Okay? It's the interaction of a peptide and MHC molecules with a specific T cell receptor CD3 complex. Right? We've been talking about that. Right? We've been talking about how this is going to be able to take place. Right? So the T cell receptor is going to be able to recognize that peptide by recognizing that MHC molecule and not responding to that MHC molecule because it's been taught right, in the thymus not to do that. So it's going to be able to recognize that peptide right, via, the, uh, via the T cell receptor and the MHC molecule. Now we need that second signal, now we need that co-stimulatory signal, right? And that's that subsequent antigen nonspecific co-stimulatory signal by interaction between CD28 on the T cell or another molecule that's called CTLA4 on the surface of the T cell and that B7 molecule on the surface of the antigen presenting cell. So that's the co-stimulatory signal. In recent years, we've gotten signal number three involved in the mix, right? And this is a proliferation or differentiation signal. Remember before when we said if you're an antigen-presenting cell, you should also be able to release interleukin-1? Interleukin-1 would be that proliferation or differentiation signal. When we talked about T cells becoming activated and releasing interleukin-2 in both an autocrine and a paracrine relationship, Interleukin-2 could also be signal number three, right? It's going to be able to direct T-cell differentiation into different subsets or by those effector T-cells themselves, okay? So, signal number one, signal number two, signal number three. Here's the antigen-presenting cell, here's the T-cell, here's the MHC, right, molecule interacting with the T-cell receptor that's going to lead to activation. B7 interacting with CD28 is a survival or the second signal, and then the cytokines are going to be a differentiation signal. It's going to be either interleukin-6, interleukin-12, TGF-beta, maybe even interleukin-2, okay? So if we're looking at this T cell, right, CD80, CD28, ITAM motifs on the interior of the T cell via CD28 is going to be involved with signaling. Right? MHC going to interact with the T cell receptor. We're going to have those phosphorylation changes take place by the tyrosine uh, kinases, and that's going to be activation of signal number one. Right? We have all these things that are taking place here. As it turns out, right, we can just sort of skip ahead here for a second, right? that B7 molecule interacting with CD28 is going to send a positive signal to the T cell, a proliferation signal, a go. Right? That's the go code for those T cells to be able to become activated and turn on. We also need, right, we have the yin, we need the yang. The yang signal is going to come from CTLA-4. When B7 interacts, eventually, right, CTLA-4 is going to appear on the cell surface. When B7 interacts and, and sends a signal through CTLA-4, Right? In the very beginning, CD28 is the predominant molecule. That's the go signal. 
as the T cell is proliferating and, and, uh, and dividing and differentiating, CD28 is removed from the surface, CTLA4 appears on the surface, CTLA4 is the stop sign. We've talked about this before, we need a way to go from kill, kill, kill to ah, we're back to normal. Right? So this is CD28 and this is CTLA4. And these are the T cells themselves. This is the activated, fully functional, right, naive T cell over here, naive T cell over here, and activated T cell right up here. Right? We need to bring it back down. We need to right, send that calm down signal, and that's going to come through CTLA4. So when you look at all these different things as they're taking place, Simplification of the T-cell signaling. If this wasn't a simplification, if we needed to see T-cell signaling, we need a bigger room, right? Because again, like we've said before, we could make this go all the way over here and it could go all the way down into the, what's down below, the lower level, right? This is just some sort of interactions that are taking place in a very simplified sort of a way, right? Here's B7 and CD28. Right? We're going to have all signaling take place. Here's a bunch of signaling molecules like the JNK, MAP kinase. As we're looking through the T-cell receptor and the MHC molecules, T-cell receptor with the ITAM motifs on the, on the zeta chains and those signalings are going to be able to take place. Right? IP3 going to stimulate calcium flux from calcium pools inside. That's going to be able to be stimulating other molecules that are going to be involved with signaling via calcium. Right? Protein kinase C, we said, is going to be involved with taking NF-kappa B, releasing I-kappa B, and bringing NF-kappa B to the interior of the, of the nucleus. All these other transcription factors, that's basically what we're doing. We're driving the ability of these transcription factors to translocate into the nucleus, take up residence on the DNA, and be involved with right, increased gene expression. Again, very, very simplified. It's, it, it's simplified on the other side of the coin because right, we're also signaling this way as well. Right? This B7 is a co-signaling co-receptor. The MHC is going to be a co-signaling co-receptor. So we're going to get signals to the interior of that antigen-presenting cell as well. Right? So we have all these things taking place. But really, the, the major sort of thing that we're talking about here is right, these co-stimulatory signals, because this is the way in which we're going to have control of the immune response. Okay? We'll talk about in a minute about if we don't, what's going to happen if we don't get any of these signals taking place. In terms of B cells, right, everything that's happening in a T lymphocyte are going to be happening in a B lymphocyte. So all these events and cascades are almost identical. In this instance, right, that antigen binding to the B cell receptor is going to be able to start the process. But here we have B cell specific protein tyrosine kinases like SYK. That's a homologue of the ZAP kinase that you can find in T cells. And SYK is going to be associated with the ITAM motifs in Ig alpha and Ig beta. Right? So everything we talked about here is exactly the same as going on. Now we can just, again, like we've said before, like I've said before, we can change that T cell. In this case, we're changing it to B cell. Right? So we're going to be able to do all these different things. All right, so we could go on, but let's talk about the test. Because, yes, I've been working overtime to get your test back to you. So you're going to see this test, right? And the first thing you'll know is that uh, the average grade for the test was a little bit higher this time. Like I said, a lot of people like the second test better because, well, you know why you liked it better. It's sort of easy to stand for. So, what does this tell you? What this tells you right now is you know what half your grade is. Right? Again, because the, because the average grade here was right, right on the C, right where it should be, if you got a 90, you got an A. If you got an 80, you got a B. So you know what half your grade is. Second half from, well, not the second half, but from here on in, you have a presentation. 
presentation is totally on you. You can decide how much energy, how much effort you want to put into it. If you put in a lot of effort, you're going to get a good grade. If you put in a little bit of effort, like if you come up here and give your presentation, there are these things in the body called B lymphocytes. And these cells called B lymphocytes secrete these very powerful molecules called antibody molecules. Really. Right? Everybody in this course knows what a B cell is. Everybody knows the all-powerful antibody molecule. Right? So everybody sitting up there is going to know when your presentation sucks because you looked at you know, Wikipedia last night and you copied a few stuff from Wikipedia and you brought it into class the next day. Everybody's going to know it. I'm going to know it. You're going to know it. Right? So that's the, that's the other quarter of your grade. And then the last quarter of your grade is the final. The final is in cumulative. Right? The final is just a regular test. It's going to have 25 short answer questions on it. It's going to have pick the you know, blah, blah, blah. So now, after, oh, after seeing all this, you have a decision. Do you want to stay in the course? Do you want to withdraw from the course? If you're a senior, perhaps you want to use your pass-fail option. Right? I always tell seniors when they come and talk to me during, uh, what's it called when you take the hold off? Advising. I always tell seniors, don't take the, the, the pass-fail out of the building when you leave, when you graduate, if you feel you want to use it. A lot of seniors will use it next semester when they'll say, oh, I'm going to take this course pass-fail because I want to coast because I know it's going to get warmer. I know I'm going to go to the beach. Right? So you can also decide to take it pass-fail if you so desire. All right. So what do we got? A through G. That's an N. Those are M's, and those are N's, and everybody else's.